You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called wasted potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called the portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my apets, who will not hit the cell until your account either flies or flops and dies! Welcome back everyone to Always Picking Electric Securities. It's your host Alex Marku and today is March 4, 2022. And for today's episode, after I give you a quick update on my positions because it's the first episode of the month, I'm going to be diving into Jon Stewart's new episode of The Problem that I just watched yesterday and he talks about what the current problems are in today's modern world with the stock market. Now I'll just be giving you a quick summary, but I believe this is a must watch for anyone. Then in the sports segment, I'll be recapping all of my picks for the last week and I'll try to strategically make some picks for this upcoming one. And then finally to wrap up the episode, because today's episode is the 24th one, I wanted to dedicate it to Kobe. So I'm going to be having a teaching moment on Kobe Bryant. And then by the end of this episode, I know that you'll have viewed Kobe's life as more than just being a really good basketball player. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Financial disclaimer. Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. Alright, welcome back all my apes and retail investors that think alike. On today's investing segment, I'm going to give you a quick recap and update on all of my holdings. And then before I break down and start summarizing what Jon Stewart's The Problem Episode 5 was about, I'm going to let you know what I took away from the State of the Union address. I'll let you know at what price point I bought Coca-Cola. And if you want to participate in the upcoming dividend payment for April 1st, I'll let you know when the final day you could buy this stock for it is. And then because personally I'm a huge advocate and believer in GameStop transforming and revolutionizing itself, I wanted to let you know about one of the Reddit posts I found this week just to give you an idea of the true price point of what GameStop would be if it was equal to other companies' market caps. So without wasting any more time, let me dive straight into my Apes portfolio, which right now looks super red. And starting off with the securities section, I have a total valuation of $489.84. Moving on to the cryptocurrency section, it's got a total valuation of $236.66, and then this is where things went wrong the past week, in my gambling section, because I brought the total all the way down to $430.74. Now because the gambling section wasn't able to pull its weight and actually has been falling just like the rest of the market, this puts my total portfolio valuation at $1,157.23. Now I'm technically down 17.3% in my portfolio, but I've got about 200 total dollars of actual buying power that I can exercise this upcoming month. 
So even though being down 17% sounds bad right now, especially because I've been green before, don't let it worry you because I'm not stressed at all. I know I've got $200 of cash and time on my side. So at some point in the future, things are going to correct. And right now, with the current state of the world and kind of some chaos in the Ukrainian and Russian tensions, it's no wonder that the whole markets are going red. Well, except for oil prices. Those things are skyrocketing. And now before I move on from my portfolio holdings, since it's the first episode of the month, I wanted to let you know exactly what positions I'm still holding, which is all of them, but I'll still do this at the beginning of every month. So now it's about to sound like I'm reading ingredients off of a shampoo bottle, so if you want to skip ahead the next 2 or 3 minutes, feel free to do so. But for my securities section, I have 50 shares of Super League Gaming with a market value of $100 and I'm down about 24% in this investment so far. Moving on to my Central Electric Company, I have 11 shares of those with a total market value of $13.42 and unfortunately I'm down 65% in this company. And this is the company I chose because they were originally the Naked brand when I bought them. The next stock I have up there on this portfolio is 6 shares of costs with a total market valuation of $42.90 and I'm down about 29% in this investment so far. Now this next stock is pretty much the only one that's green in my portfolio right now and it's the computer share company. It's the one that ends with a Y at the end and I've got 5 shares of those with a market valuation of $76.15 and I'm up, so not down, up. 12.8% in this one little stock. And now, back to some stocks that are in the red, because I've got 5 shares of this ADGI stock with the current market valuation of $25.88 and I'm down about 47% for this investment. Then, one of the newest additions to this APE's portfolio was a stock Coca-Cola that I added earlier this week. So I have one share of Coca-Cola right now and its total market valuation is $62.51 and I'm actually up 1.9%. Now I'll dive into this play a little bit later in the investing segment so hold on for now if you've got questions about it. Because I saved the best stock for last especially for this Apes portfolio update and that's the one share of GameStop that I originally bought. The current market valuation right now for me is $116.51. So this means I'm down 42% in this investment. And now we've still got one last play for the securities department and that's the one options contract I'm still holding onto until it essentially just expires worthless or if I'm lucky this next upcoming month, Super League Gaming will have a huge pump up. But that's going to be quite a long shot because right now Super League Gaming is trading at $2 and I bought a call a couple months ago for a strike price of $7.50. Now I wound up paying a premium of $50 for this contract at the time and unfortunately right now it's valued at about $5. So for this call option I'm down 90% but I already view it as lost money because I don't expect Super League Gaming to climb up $5.50 within the next month. But if you're wondering, my call option expires April 14th. So if by April 14th there's a huge spike in Super League Gaming and you're holding onto a call because you happen to listen to me, sell that shit ASAP. I'm probably not going to because I'm not going to sell anything on this podcast unless I tell you to. But I can tell you from experience with options contracts that if you have a worthless option contract 
and one day your stock price jumps 30%, that's the best day to get rid of it. Especially if your other plan is just what mine is, which is to let the option expire worthless, which means money is gone. So if you want to at least cut some of your losses and get some of that buying power and money back, I would say wait for Super League Gaming to have a huge spike within the next month and a half if it happens, and then sell your options contracts then. So that was a whole lot of red I just updated you for my security section of this portfolio. Now let me move on to the crypto section because it's not any better. Because for my Bitcoin investment, I initially put $50 down and right now I'm down 33% for that investment. My Ethereum, I initially put $50 down and now I'm down 45%. Then for my personal favorite crypto that I've traded so far, which is Doge, I put $75 as initial investment there, and I'm down about 35%. Then the last three cryptos I added to this segment before I realized how trash Coinbase really is, was Cardano, Loopring, and a BAT token. Now I wound up putting about $21 total in Cardano, and I'm down 40% there. For Loopring, I wound up putting about $32 as an initial investment, and I'm down 63%. And then for my BAT token, I wound up putting just about $20 as an initial investment, and I'm down nearly 50%. And so far, all you've heard is a lot of negative percents that are in the high double digits. So if you really were investing with me this past four months, I would say I apologize, but I'm not going to. Because if you're also listening to me, you would know that you would just hold on to your shit because next year, a lot of these stocks aren't going to be in the negative double digit percentages. They might even be gaining you some money. So I'm going to be holding on strong. And when I finally feel that it's time to sell some of these positions, I'll let you know. Until then, if you've got a soft gut and you don't want to quote unquote throw your money away, just sit back, relax, and enjoy listening to me making all of these what you would consider mistakes, because I view them as teaching moments for you. And now to wrap up this whole Apes portfolio update, I'm going to quickly give you the three segments I have for my gambling balances, because you would have noticed my overall portfolio is down 17%, and I can tell you it's because, like a degenerate, I didn't gamble correctly the past two weeks. So you remember how I said all of my three segments for gambling balances were in the positive? That's still true today, but my round robin profit overall is only $5.75. So whatever it was last time, I nearly demolished all of that profit from this segment. My regular bet log is still at $120 and my parlay sheet is at $54.99. This puts my total profit for my gambling account at just $180.74. So I've literally slashed this profit in half over the last two weeks. So I guess I need to start making some better bets. So that'll be wrapping up this month's deep dive into my portfolio and the next three episodes you hear are just gonna be quick recaps. So now let me dive into the three small talking points I wanted to mention before I bring up Jon Stewart's new episode of The Problem with the Stock Market. And the first point, unfortunately, is going to sound like it's a political one because I watched briefly the State of the Union address this past week with Joe Biden. And I'm not going to say I actually watched it and paid attention to the whole thing, but there was one key point that he said in that State of the Union address 
that lit a light bulb in my little head. And the part he mentioned is how he's going to start charging corporations a bottom line 15% corporate tax. Now you might ask yourself, well don't corporations pay tax? And you're wrong. Because according to some statistics, last year, 55 out of the Fortune 500 companies, so that means 55 companies out of 500, did not pay a single dime in corporate tax. Now you might ask yourself, wait, how's that possible? If they're a Fortune 500 company making millions, how are they not even paying a dollar in tax income? And let me tell you how. Because there's a loophole in the system and Joe Biden mentioned it in his State of the Union address. And because I studied accounting, I actually can kind of explain this to you and I'll try not to get too much into real accounting language and I'll try and dumb it down instead. But before we dumb anything down, I first need to explain some stuff in maybe complex terms, maybe not. But I'll dumb it down after, I promise. So one of the first questions you might ask yourself is how are corporations able to avoid paying federal income tax? And I'll tell you how. Because there's two kinds of income that corporations have to record. And that's called book income and tax income. Now you might ask yourself, what's the difference? Well, book income is income that a corporation needs to record on their income statement sheet. So what this means is investors can see how the corporation actually produces its income based on its books. So wouldn't this be the income that's taxable? The answer is no, because there's actually something considered taxable income. So what's taxable income? Well, taxable income is your book income minus any deductions or expenses that the corporation sees fit. And what are some examples of these expenses and deductions you might ask? Well, I'll give you one of them. One of the deductible items is your stock employee option program. So that's the stock option plan that your corporation offers you. So this means they can deduct whatever number is in the total amount of employee stock options and subtract it from their book value so you don't pay taxable income. So what you're telling me is a corporation has to, according to GAAP, which is generally accepted accounting principles, they have to report their book income so investors know what the book value of actual income the corporation earns. But then for some stupid ass reason, in this complex financial system, which is meant to be complex for a reason, there's a loophole where this corporation can take that book income and subtract even more so they don't pay as many taxes. So why am I sounding a little bit upset? Because a company being able to deduct their employee stock option program from their book income so they don't pay more taxes is ridiculous. Because as an individual, do you think you're allowed to take your total 401k balance and deduct that from your taxable income? I highly doubt it. But for some reason, a corporation is allowed to do this. They're allowed to use their own employees' stock option plans, which are literally stock plans that are held in an employee's accounts, not to be vested, not to be used for the future. So it's an investment on your employee. And you're telling me the same company 
that's profiting off of these employees' hard work and telling them that we're investing in you as an employee for the future by creating this stock option program is able to then use that same stock option program to deduct from all of the profits that those hardworking employees provide for that said company itself. So then what happens is that company pays less taxes. And in a world run on money, who do you think gets left holding the bag when there's extra income or money that needs to be moved around? Because these corporations aren't paying taxes, so they're not funneling money through companies. And I bet you guessed it. That's you, the taxpayer. So you are the bag holder as a taxpayer for making up for all of these little differences of certain corporations not paying a tax. And now how is President Biden trying to address this problem? Well, supposedly, and according to him, because let me tell you this, I honestly have zero faith and trust in the political system. But according to his plan, he has talked with over 133 countries to finalize and establish a 15% corporate tax, no matter what, on book income. So he said, fuck you all with your tax income. You're going to be charged on book income and you can't use your own employees' investments as a way to deduct from paying taxes. Just how you're not allowed to use your own 401k balances, brokerage accounts, or anything like this to deduct from your taxes. Wouldn't that be nice? But back to that political theater I was watching earlier this week. Because President Joe Biden said that he talked with 133 countries to establish this 15% corporate tax on book income. So how this helps, because now you have 133 other countries on board, is now if you have these shithead companies trying to outsource just so they can make marginal profits at the expense of American taxpayers, even though their products are being sold to American consumers, well, now you can't do that. Because if you go to another country thinking you're going to outsource, well, you're still paying a 15% bottom line corporate tax. And this is going to be huge for the future because now if these Fortune 500 companies actually have to pay tax, there's going to be less of a burden on taxpayers and just regular people like you and me to cover up the shit that these companies don't want to pay for. And I'm not going to be holding my breath on actually seeing this kind of shit get enacted anytime soon because I know how government, state, and even politics work. They say something like this, and it's probably going to take about five years to actually get implemented. But one thing I can say is at least even the old heads are starting to take a step in the right direction. So I guess I was lucky for the five minutes I actually tuned into the State of the Union address. I just so happened to hear about this difference between book income and tax income and what Biden, or at least the administration, is going to try and do to fix it. Will they actually do anything? Only time will tell and I'll be here to call them out if nothing happens in a couple years. And now let me move away from this political atmosphere because I don't really like talking about politics on this podcast, but because politics plays such a crucial role in the financial industry, every now and then when there's at least something I think is crucial from politics, which is very little chance, I'll bring it up here. Like the Russian and Ukrainian war tensions is definitely something that should be brought up. Also, if companies have to start paying tax, regardless if they outsource, is also something I think should be brought up. 
But now, let me move on to something that definitely fits this Apes portfolio a little bit more, and that's the Coca-Cola share that I bought on Monday. Now, I remember last week, I said my only condition for buying Coca-Cola was to buy it on a day when it was red. And it just so happened that Monday morning, Coca-Cola opened up in the red. Now, I didn't buy it at market open because I slept in. But when I did wake up and remembered that I have to buy this stock, I checked it and saw it was in the red, and I was able to buy one share of Coca-Cola for $61.89. Now, the only reason I'm bringing up Coca-Cola again, because I did bring it up in the Apes portfolio update, but the reason I'm bringing up Coca-Cola again is because if you want to qualify for their next dividend payment, which they will pay you on April 1st, then the last day to buy this Coca-Cola company and qualify for the April 1st dividend will be March 11th, which is a Friday. Because Coca-Cola's ex-dividend date is going to be March 14th, but March 14th falls on a Monday. So if you buy the stock on March 14th, it's most likely not going to settle and you might not receive this dividend payment on April 1st. Now, if you hold the stock for, let's say, a year, you're going to receive the oncoming dividend payments. But this is only specifically if you want to capture the next one. And I remember for my personal investing strategy, I said, why don't people put about 10K on this ex-dividend date or before it and then just sell so they can receive the dividend proceeds? And I actually found my answer on Reddit because I was asking around and people say that the market accounts for this. Typically, there's a dip on the ex-dividend date or the week after. So if you were to try this practice, you would most likely sell that 10K at a loss. And what I was basically explained on Reddit is that if you continue to do this, in the long run, you actually don't make money because the losses you have on that small loss does not make up with the dividend payment you receive. So I know I said I was going to try this the next coming day, but instead I'm going to try it a different way. I'm going to paper trade it. So what this means is on March 11th, I'm going to pretend that I'm putting $10,000 worth into Coca-Cola on market open. And then I'm going to see what happens if I sell it on March 15th, because that's after the ex-dividend date. And I'll see technically what my loss or gain would have been. And then I'll calculate how much dividend payment I would have received. And I'll let you know if the trade actually would have been successful or not. So instead of risking 10K and just throwing it around, I'll paper trade it and I'll let you know if this idea of mine is actually a valid one or if the person on Reddit had a reasonable counter to my theory. Regardless, Coca-Cola is a really good company to hold long term, especially when the markets are going to get volatile and if we go anywhere in a recession because they've got plenty cash on hands and they always pay out a dividend. So you're guaranteed to get some kind of money back on your investment if you just hold their stock. And if you want to receive their very next dividend payment, make sure you buy the one share or more of Coca-Cola on March 11th or before it. And at least hold on to that one share until March 15th because then you will have held it after the ex-dividend date. Then you will qualify for this payment. Now if you just hold the stock and don't sell anymore, you're going to get the dividend payments as they come, which is once every three months. And I'm expecting to receive about 44 cents on this one share of Coca-Cola I had. So if you remember the episode I had last week where you know Warren Buffett is getting millions, just know 
I'm participating in a portion of those millions he's getting. And now real quick, before I talk about Jon Stewart's newest episode of The Problem with the Stock Market, I wanted to let you know another Reddit thing I found this week. And I found a post by someone named reverse underscore draw four underscore uno. Now his post was GameStop related and he essentially was just giving a recap on Superstonk of the basic fundamentals of GameStop. For example, he was kind of sharing the short interest, the amount of float percentage available, and all this other statistical information. Essentially, it's kind of like a guide for anyone new to the Superstonk Reddit and they're not sure why 700,000 people are literally all cheering for GameStop when it's still red. Well, in a Cliff Notes version for his post, he kind of just explains with stats and small little numbers to show you why there's 700,000 plus apes fighting for this GameStop company. And the only reason I wanted to bring out this post to this podcast is because at the very bottom of it, he does a comparison of what the actual price point of GameStop would be if it had a similar market cap as other companies based on January 14th, 2022. So these numbers of market caps are going to be just about two months old from what I'm telling you, but that won't make this information any less relevant. And he had a list of about 8 or 10 companies on there, but I only chose 4 of them that I think are true to the direction GameStop has a potential, okay, a potential to go into. And the 4 companies I decided to compare market caps with GameStop was Amazon, Meta, Roblox, and Coinbase. And before I get down into the price point of what GameStop would be, if it had flipped these market caps or just been of equal market caps to these four companies I just told you, let me tell you why I chose these four companies. Because as you surely know, I believe Wall Street is still clueless in on GameStop and they believe it's a brick and mortar store. But in reality, if you've been paying attention for the past year and a half, they're transforming to a huge warehouse e-commerce store that still has their brick and mortar foundations. So that's huge. And the reason I chose an Amazon comparison with GameStop is because I believe in the future, GameStop has the capacity and option to turn into an Amazon type warehouse store. But they can be the Amazon version for all of gaming products. And gaming products definitely cost a lot more and add a lot more to that top line revenue than anything you could sell on Amazon. Aside from that, GameStop's also been adding huge warehouse units and these big e-commerce places on the coasts, so I definitely see that they're trying to find out logistical ways of transporting all of these goods through their brick-and-mortar connections and the current warehouses that they're building. Which is why I view it fair to compare Wall Street's version of a dying brick-and-mortar store to Amazon, because they're actually not too far away just in terms of market cap. Then the next company I chose was Meta. Now why did I choose Meta, which is essentially just Facebook? Well, because I think GameStop has the potential to create a platform where all of these gamers, retailers, or just regular people can come onto and connect in a way. This would mean that GameStop would have to create some kind of social media platform. And I truly believe with the connections they've established with Ryan Cohen as chairman, that they're definitely moving towards an innovative future that involves technology. 
And if they want to have easy communications, I strongly believe that they're going to make their own version of a social media platform, even if it's just their GameStop iOS app. But if you heard me comparing GameStop to Amazon and Meta, you might think I'm a bit of a tinfoil hat lunatic. So let me talk about two companies that I think are closer resemblance of what GameStop is at least the next two to three years. And that's going to be Roblox and Coinbase. Now, why did I choose Roblox? Because Roblox is a huge e-commerce giant in the gaming industry where you've got kids constantly playing these games that other creators are making. Now, I haven't personally actually experienced Roblox or played on it or whatever it is, but I remember I went over to a family friend and they had kids and they were playing Roblox. And let me tell you, this shit looks exactly like Minecraft, but it was unique because I noticed it was like Minecraft, but these kids are able to create their own games in this Minecraft world. So it kind of sounds like the metaverse, but just a Minecraft version. And this is what Roblox is. This is the company that they are. And GameStop can definitely cater to that direction because they're a brick and mortar store clearly transitioning to try and take over this e-commerce gaming world, or at least be a part in it. And then the last company I have listed is Coinbase. So why do I list Coinbase on here? Well, because it's clear that in the beginning of February, GameStop partnership with Immutable X. So they're clearly looking into cryptocurrencies and blockchain stuff. So if that's what they're looking at, guess who their competitor might be? Coinbase or any other kind of crypto broker out there. Anyone that provides NFTs or crypto coins might soon see GameStop as real competition if they're able to integrate the same systems they have on a better platform. So that's my main reason as of right now on March 4th of 2022, I'm able to strongly say I believe GameStop will at some point reach market caps of Coinbase, Roblox, Meta, and Amazon. But now let's get into what the actual price would be if it had reached that market cap as of January 14th of 2022, so just two months ago. Because just about two months ago, GameStop's price point was at $117. So this has a market cap of just about, let's round up to 10 billion. Now I hope you're ready for a fun game of what if, but really what I wanna show you with this game is the potential, at least from a price point stand, that GameStop has to reach. Because hypothetically, if GameStop's market cap was equal to Amazon's on January 14th, then the actual price of GameStop would be worth $22,528 because Amazon has a market cap of $1.72 trillion. So now you know GameStop's five-year plan. Now, if I wanted to have a little bit more of a realistic comparison and not compare GameStop to this giant of an Amazon, let's see what would happen if I compared it to Meta, which is just Facebook, with a market cap of $953 billion. Well, the price for GameStop would then be $12,495. So now I know the low point in the next five years. And how I stated earlier, if you believe I'm a tinfoil hat lunatic for comparing GameStop to Amazon and Meta, then fine. Let's go to Roblox and Coinbase, which are clearly more realistic goals for GameStop's competition in the next two to three years. Well, Roblox has a market cap of $56.34 billion, and Coinbase has a market cap of $54.36 billion. 
So what this means is that if GameStop's market cap was equal to that of Roblox, the price would actually be $738. And if it had the price point of Coinbase's market cap, then it would be worth $712. So what I'm hearing is that if GameStop was actually viewed as a true e-commerce giant with a foundational brick and mortar system set up with the right amount of warehouse storage spaces scattered throughout the US and they're currently transitioning into a blockchain-like structured company, then the price of GameStop on January 14th would have been at least $700. And I just wanted to point all of this stuff out to show you what GameStop's true potential could be. Because I think a lot of people are sleeping on it right now because they're too busy just listening to what mainstream media is telling you about this company. And that's that it's a dying brick and mortar. But they fail to tell you that they have nearly zero liabilities and all this money in cash. And they've been making some very, very awesome partnership acquisition deals the last year and a half, which just so happens to be Ryan Cohen's reign as a chairman. So once again, I'd like to give a big shout out and thanks to reverse underscore draw four underscore uno because he's the one on Reddit that provided me this post and it really shows the true potential that GameStop has along with the actual current statistical information of the free flow available, how much is directly registered, and some other factors that make GameStop a very attractive company to invest in. And now my final talking point for the investing segment today is going to be John Stewart's new episode of The Problem with the Stock Market, which aired on Apple TV, and I think it might be coming on HBO soon too. And what I recommend is that you listen to this, because this really affects you as an individual. You finally get to see how the complexities of the financial market system are actually working against you, because John Stewart is able to, in a very funny and light way, make a talk show about this. Because in this talk show, you get to hear him talk with a panel of people who are from all different kinds of fields and generations. You've got the younger crowd. He has stock YouTubers on the panel. Someone that used to work for Citadel Securities, which is a huge money maker, an actual stock broker, and then just a regular person. He's able to put together a panel and just basically tackle on some of the toughest questions about the stock market. And are you ready for the best part? Because do you want to know what example exactly he uses to show how the system was so fragile and people on Reddit and apes all around were able to poke a hole in it and actually nearly collapse it? Well, the example he uses is GameStop's short squeeze. And now I watched the whole thing and it's only about an hour long, so it really feels like you're watching an hour long documentary. But I've got to say, this is a must watch for absolutely everyone. Because if you're eventually going to work a job and pay some taxes, this is going to affect you. And I'm not going to be breaking down the whole entire documentary, but what I will do is summarize some very key points and notes that I took during this documentary. And my favorite thing so far about this talk show is just the way it starts off. It's an awesome start because it starts off with Jon Stewart in a small conference room talking with four or five other regular looking people, okay? No one in business suits or lawyers or that. 
He just talks to regular people about how things are. And this one younger girl says, Isn't it nice how back in the day, you used to earn 5% on your savings account, and now, with the current financial system, if I have a bounced check, I own a fine of $15? Also, savings account returns are less than 1% now. And if you're curious as to why your savings accounts are literally worthless, is because it's purposely meant to be that way. But watch John Stewart's The Problem, Episode 5, if you want to find out more. Because one of the points I really want to reiterate is just how much of this actual stock market is owned by a small select few. Because we all know the stat how 90% of the money in the world is owned by 1% or whatever, you know, 10%. We all know that stupid stat. But this is the stock market I'm about to talk to you about. Because as of 1989, which I guess is 30-something years ago, 78% of the stock market was owned by just 10% of the people. And now back in 1989, in order to invest in stock, you kind of had to have some money because there were these commission fees attached to every trade. I believe back then, if you wanted to make a trade, it was like about 5 to $10, maybe even more. I might be lowballing it by a lot, but 5 to $10 per one share. That's insane and low-key, very elitist. But don't worry, don't you think these people in power wanted to democratize the stock market? Your answer might initially be no, but the real one was yes, because they created these things called e-brokers. So what e-brokers did is they democratized the stock market. Now how do you democratize the stock market? Well how I just told you that back in the day you had to pay a lot of commission on every single trade they probably made this commission a little bit lower. So now maybe instead of, I don't know, five to $10 per every single share, maybe they're nice enough to say it's just $5 for every block trade you make. So now you can buy 100 shares of something and you're gonna get a $5 commission fee. This technically was considered democratizing finance for people. So if you heard that somewhere around the late 90s, there were more of these e-brokers and they found a way to democratize the stock market so that there's more people that can actually invest in the market. What do you think would happen with how much ownership is owned by 10% of those people of this stock market? It technically should go down, right? But guess what really happened? In 2010, there was a study that showed that 10% of those same people in 1989 now owned 80% of the entire stock market. So it went up 2% in ownership for these greedy assholes in about 21 years by opening up these e-brokers and finding a way to democratize the stock market. Well, it wasn't completely democratized because you still had to pay these commission fees. So lo and behold, here comes our Lord and Savior, Robinhood, offering zero commission fees on absolutely everything. How awesome is that? Like, think about it. Robin Hood, steal from the rich and give to the poor, right? We've all seen that movie. We know what it's like to be poor and have the rich people taking advantage of every little situation. It's literally been displayed on almost every Disney movie ever. But luckily we had this glorious knight in shining armor ready to help us bring down that ownership of 80% of the stock market that's controlled by just 10% of the people in the world, they said enough. We're here to be the middleman 
for you retail traders. Start stealing from the rich, baby. Well, it sounds great on paper until you find out that in 2019, just nine years later, those same 10% of the assholes that own this stock market now own 84% of it. So, guess what happened? They increased their ownership by 4% in offering the 0% commission. Which then starts to really get you to think and wonder, is all this zero commission trading really beneficial for me? Or is it somehow helping these richer people get more control of the stock market they already had 78% control in in 1989 before most of us listening to this, and myself included, were even born? And now you might ask yourself, well, how the hell does something like this even happen in a financial system? And I'll tell you, watch John Stewart's episode 5, The Problem with the Stock Market. Because I'm not smart enough or have nearly the resources he had to actually explain this and dumb it down to you in a simple way. I just understand it in my own version and I'm trying to reiterate it to see if maybe I can get a little light bulb click in your head. But let me see real quick if I can try and break down this fraudulent business model that's happening right now so you can understand just how complex this market system can actually be. Because in the beginning of his talk show, John Stewart mentions how stock trading is technically supposed to be on paper. And the way it technically is supposed to work on paper is you've got an individual who wants to invest in a company. But the only way an individual can actually give their money to a said company is to go through a broker who then settles that trade on the New York Stock Exchange or whatever exchange is open. The Nasdaq, for example, any other exchange out there. Then that said exchange proceeds those money to the said company you invested in and then the same exchange will also give you the said shares of the company so you have part ownership. So that's how things work in a made-up fictional world because guess how reality works? How reality works is now you've got Robin Hood who is sandwiched in between the individual and the broker because they offer you 0% commission fee. And how do they do this? By a system of something called purchase for order flow. Now, I'm not going to dive into what purchase for order flow is on this podcast because it's not well over my head, but in terms of explaining it to you, that is. All I can tell you right now is that purchase for order flow is just another word for scamming people pennies at a time. And get this, do you want to know who created purchase for order flow? Go ask your parents who Bernie Madoff is and if they remember his stupid ass name. And if they tell you that's a piece of shit that ran the New York Stock Exchange and the whole stock market as one giant Ponzi scheme using this purchase for order flow method that caused the 2008 housing crash, then your parents would be really informed and kept up to date. But let me tell you, if they just tell you, oh, he's a bad man, or they have any negative remark towards him, it's because he was the actual head leader of the NASDAQ exchange. This is like having the boss at the top of the stock market exchange. He created something called purchase for order flow, which eventually caused the 2008 housing crash. So how does this purchase for order flow BS work? Well, get this bullshit, right? You're an individual. And now if you want to invest in a said company, 
you go through Robin Hood, you don't go through the broker, and now that broker isn't able to put your stock trade on the actual exchange. So what happens if you trade on Robinhood? Well, your trade actually goes to something called the dark pool. And how the hell is this legal or allowed? Well, because Bernie Madoff, when he was reigning CEO of the Nasdaq exchange, implemented this regulation. And for 20 goddamn years, no one's done a thing about it. And not no one, the SEC and Congress have done jack shit about it and probably deregulated more stuff just to make things worse. But here's how things work behind the scenes. When you hit buy on a stock on Robinhood, what's really happening is you're pushing that order flow to a market maker. And one of the biggest market makers that pays, okay, they pay Robinhood to use purchase for order flow is Citadel Securities. So Citadel Securities, ran by Kenneth Cordell Griffin, pays Vlad Tenev and Robinhood for purchase for order flow so that, get this, they can market make your transactions in dark pools. So what they do is they take your trades off of Robinhood, they plunge all these transactions in their quote-unquote dark pools. Yes, that's literally what they're called, dark pools. And then eventually, when these market makers feel like it, they can submit dark pool orders and submissions to an exchange. But they're banking on not ever having to do so. Because here's a hypothetical. Let's say a user on Robinhood buys a stock and sells it two days later. You know what can actually happen behind the scenes? You can hit buy on Robinhood, your order goes to this dark pool, it never touches the exchange, so you're never able to truly get price discovery on the stock you have because your buying of the stock didn't add any demand or pressure on the buy option for the exchange of that given stock in that moment. Why? Because when you bought on Robinhood, your order was rerouted to a dark pool. And let's say the dark pool rules for the certain pool you were put in only reports those trades on an exchange seven days later. Now I'm just making this little scenario up. But what would happen then is anyone that sells before those seven days, those orders will never have made it to the exchange itself. So now you're lacking in transparency for if your buy orders are really affecting the stock price, at least in the current situation. Because at some point, if theoretically everyone held all the shares they have in these dark pools, those dark pool orders would eventually get sent to the exchange and then you would get real price discovery. So are you ready to hear some real interesting shit? Because the whole short squeeze situation with GameStop was driven off of who else? Robinhood. So everyone was making purchases on Robinhood for GameStop and guess what? Someone found out about this whole dark pool situation and how things work. So on Reddit, they were screaming out, yo morons, if we just hold, they're gonna have to submit our order at some point to the exchange, which is gonna cause a run-up, and then all these short positions, which at the time was 140%, are gonna have to close and buy the stock. So guess what happened? Instead of Robinhood users being okay with just a 100 to 200% gain on GameStop, they held their shares. They didn't sell. So when Citadel Securities, the market maker, had to submit these dark pool orders to the actual exchange because their time ran out on whatever rules they have for these fucking dark pools, then guess what happened? It caused a huge run-up in the stock price. 
And then that's when you got the institutions involved. Because all these short hedge funds and institutions that had to hedge against their bets were starting to buy the actual underlying stock price. And when institutions buy, do you know what happens? Their orders get routed right to the exchange. So retail orders go through dark pools and institutional orders go right to the exchange. Now, if you're a retailer and as a population, you hold on long enough, then your orders actually make it to the exchange. Pretty wild shit if you ask me, but John Stewart's episode five of the problem with the stock market explains all of this complexity in a very light, funny, and informative way. So if you want to find out more, I highly recommend you watch it. And I know right now it's on Apple TV, but Jon Stewart also has a podcast and he also has a YouTube channel and I believe you might be able to find it there. And I think he ends the show in the best way possible because he actually has a sit down with the SEC chairman, Gary Gensler. So what he does is he actually talks to Gary, who is literally the head honcho chief of the SEC and he asks him a bunch of very good questions revolving the market structure itself. So if you've always been curious about this complex market and want it dumbed down to you because even I can't happen to do that, well then I highly recommend you watching Jon Stewart's fifth episode of The Problem. And if you're a little bit worried about the future of the markets, don't worry. I honestly believe that the markets are in good hands. Currently, they're not. But I think the future is going to be changed because there was an actual solution offered on this episode. And the real solution is, well, you got to get enough people to care. You got to get enough of these retail investors to care. And if you don't care that your money is going in these dark pools so the greedy can control how your trades are actually routed to an exchange so they can go from 78% ownership to 84 and maybe even 90 in the future, well then you gotta care. And as soon as you care, what you gotta do is you contact the SEC with letters and you start voting on actual policies that are gonna start helping you out as a retail trader. Because it's really easy. You just gotta go to the sec.org and you can find out exactly what it is and what issue you wanna write on. For example, I've written on three issues so far for the SEC. And all you have to do is go on sec.org slash rules. And there you have a bunch of proposals that you can click write a comment to. And just to give you an example, I wrote comments to the SEC specifically about insider trading laws. And I remember specifically requesting that there are harsher rules and penalties for not allowing anyone in a high position of power to perform any kind of insider trading acts. The way I offer this up is to have a third party being in charge of the actual person's investments and that they can't pick individual stock, they can only pick mutual funds. So essentially it's setting up a 401k account for them, which in my view is a lot better than letting someone like a Nancy Pelosi tell her husband what calls to buy because she's on the inside of a huge debriefing committee for the next tech companies. The second letter I wrote to the SEC about was about the settlement cycle date. Right now, we live in a system where it takes two days to settle your trades. And with cryptocurrency in the blockchain network, you can settle trades instantaneously, in minutes or less. So I don't see why we can't implement the same system to the stock market, unless someone is making some serious cash 
with these two-day settlement periods, which then is a conflict of interest. So I politely requested to the SEC that they look in a way to find a way to make it T plus zero settlement instead of the T plus one settlement period that they requested for. I'm trying to get them to push more. And then the final proposal that I wrote on was about the Whistleblowers Act because the proposal was asking if they should improve incentives and protection for whistleblowers. And I said, hell yes, because without whistleblowers, it's almost harder to find out what companies are fraudulent and not. And even with whistleblowers, it's hard. Because let me tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, even though Bernie Madoff's bullshit of purchase for order flow is bad, do you know how bad it is to know that the SEC got tipped off by Bernie Madoff's antics by a lot of people well before 2008, well before he was arrested? Get this. In 2004, there was someone who actually worked on the NASDAQ exchange, which was the same exchange Bernie Madoff was ruling at the time under his reign using this purchase for order flow system. Do you want to know what complaint they sent to the SEC in 2004, four years before all of your parents and grandparents lost that pension fund? Well, this stockbroke trader wrote to the SEC that purchase for order flow is hurtful for the stock market because it lacks transparency, is anti-competitive, and it creates obvious and substantial conflicts of interest between the broker dealers and customers. So in other words, when I make a trade with my broker dealer and they submit orders to dark pools, that creates a conflict of interest because they know exactly how many pennies they skim off the top of every trade. Those pennies should be rerouted to you. Instead, those pennies are going to the rich likes of money maker managers like Kenneth Cordell Griffin, who can now buy super yachts, apartment complexes, and villas or islands or whatever the fuck they want, because as long as you're making voluminous trades, you're just hitting buy and sell on an app, they get pennies skimmed off the top for every trade. And what did the SEC do? Absolutely nothing. Did you know that Bernie Madoff actually never got caught by the SEC? He actually turned himself in. And it wasn't himself, I believe, that turned himself in. I believe it was actually his family members that got him turned in because they were worried that he was trying to escape when shit was seriously about to hit the fan. So it was his family, his fucking family, that had a moral conscience on the actual American economy said, no, you can't just ruin everyone's life and then escape to Bermuda or whatever island you want to make. So they were the ones that turned him in and then Bernie Madoff is the one that admitted to these because I'm guessing he had some certain plea deals. And if you listen to the interview that Jon Stewart gives with Gary Gensler, you can clearly hear that Gary Gensler's one solid reasoning for why purchase for order flow is still being used today is because Bernie served his time. Are you serious? So because he served his time, that means his invention was a brilliant one? Well, I think that's ridiculous. And that's why I think the current state of the financial system right now is run by actually a bunch of dumbasses. And it's a bunch of dumbasses that just want to stay in power. 
So they deregulate and do whatever they want to to stay in that power. And I personally think for the future, things are going to change because people, like I said, are waking up and they've had enough. And I refuse to believe in the other alternative where we continue to let 10% of the people control how the world actually works. Because their goal, I guarantee you, is to own 99% of this stock market. They don't want to own 100 because they love to fuck over retail traders. It's the only thing that gets these old wrinkly assholes hard or wet anymore. And that's fucking over the little guy. So that's going to be wrapping up today's investing segment. And yes, it was a little bit more serious because everything is starting to come full circle now. Except this time, this time, there's millions of us that are prepared and know exactly the bullshit these greedy 10% can pull. So thank you for tuning in on today's episode. And if you feel any little bit discouraged, don't because I was in your shoes about a year and a half ago. And now I feel confident that the world's going to change because there's people that want certain market structures and complexities to change. And until next time, everybody, keep out. Welcome back, my friendly degenerates and anyone that just likes to listen to the sports investing segment. So for today's episode, I'm going to have to run down my awful bet slips I created the last week. And I'm going to see if I can make some strategic picks this upcoming week. I'll be giving this gambling trial thing by a week out one more attempt this upcoming week. And if I lose my money again, then I might revamp this gambling segment into being primarily followed by Twitter. Because I will say, giving out picks a week ahead kind of sucks, especially because the last three days when I was making the underdog NBA slips... I honestly had zero faith in those picks, but I made them five days ago, so I still submitted the bet slip, which clearly has lost me a lot of money. And how much money did I lose this past week on four bad bet slips? Well, let me recap them real quick, because the first bet slip I had going into the weekend was my soccer leagues one, and I chose a bunch of teams that just had plus line indications. Well, that shit didn't really work out because the bet slip wound up going just two for eight. So for my $56 I initially invested on this round robin, I lost $49.45 of it. The only two winners that even helped me even make a little bit of money on this bet slip was Barcelona winning their game and West Ham winning theirs. Other than that, everything else lost. Then starting on March 1st, I started my three straight days of doing nothing but picking underdogs. And boy did I pick a bad 3 day span to start picking underdogs. Because for that first night of it, there was only one underdog that won. And that was the Timberwolves beating the Warriors. The Pistons, Hawks, Nets, Rockets, and Lakers all lost their game on March 1st. So for this bet slip, I just straight up lost all $30 I put in. Now the next day wasn't any better, but I did have one extremely unlikely underdog win which literally helped me not lose all my money. Because for the March 2nd NBA bet slip, I had the Hornets, Magic, Knicks, Heat, Kings, Rockets, Thunder, and Blazers all to win. That's just because they were all underdogs in their matchups. And the thing that sucks is for this bet slip, I only went 2 for 8. Now, one thing that was nice is the Thunder were able to win, 
and their odds were at plus 855. So because the Thunder and the Hornets were able to win, even though I placed $56 on this bet, and I only went 2 for 8, which is the minimum requirement needed to even start earning money on these round robin bets, I only lost $9.20. The one thing that's disappointing, if I would have gone even 3 for 8 or 4 for 8, I would have made some serious money just because the Thunder at plus 855 parlayed with any other plus indicating bet odd would have won me at least $30 plus on $2 bet slips for anything after. But that didn't happen, so right now it's just a whole lot of what-if games. And my final bet slip, which was just yesterday for March 3rd, was the only one that netted me any kind of money. And the bet slip consisted of the Bulls, Heat, Pistons, Grizzlies, Kings, Warriors, and Lakers to win. Now for this bet slip, which was a 17 pick, I only went 3 for 7. But... I was lucky enough to have some big underdogs win like the Kings at plus 215 odds and the Pistons at plus 300 odds. So because I went 3 for 7 in this bet slip, even though I risked $42 and I shouldn't make any money on it, I actually made $15.38. It still doesn't even make up anywhere near for losing basically over $100 on the last 3 bet slips, but at least I can say my final bet slip was in the green. So now, what's my plan to attempt on making strategic bets for this upcoming week? Because let me tell you, the last two weeks, I've gotten my ass kicked in betting. And it might primarily have to do with the fact that I'm making picks a week out and just staying true to them, but we'll see. I'm going to give it one more week. And if next week, I'm still losing my bets at this consistent rate, I'm going to have to revamp some things. Because let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, I like giving you out bets, but I'm not trying to go broke in the betting department just yet. So if things don't work out this week, I'm going to again restructure the sports gambling segment. But most likely it would just mean that I'll be giving out the picks on Twitter and I'll be following it that way. So I know I said in the past you don't have to follow my Twitter for the sports gambling segment. But if this week fails again, well, I'm going to change that up. Because I'm not trying to show you how I just blow through money, even though I'm doing it for my stock in crypto right now. I can just decide to hold on to that stock in crypto stuff. With bet slips, well once you buy the slip, your money is gone. And unless you're correct with your picks, you don't make shit. So, I'll definitely be looking to restructure the sports gambling segment to Twitter following and I'll be making out my picks then, only if this upcoming week is just as bad as the last two weeks because I believe the gambling account at one point was close to 750 and now it's closer to where I originally started than that amount. So I'll be doing one more week of my gambling like this and if next week we don't even at least break even or just lose a little bit of money then I'm changing things up. So let's find out if I can make some strategic picks this week or if I'm just going to be blowing more money. And my first strategy is just a fun little Laker-themed one, considering this episode is a Kobe Bryant one. I figured, why don't I just bet on the Lakers' money line or spreads if they're favorites for the next games they have this upcoming week. And there's going to be three games that I can try this theme on. Now, unfortunately, tomorrow's game, I don't believe the Lakers will win, but I'm going to still put $10 on them against the Warriors. The next two games they have next week is going to be against the Spurs and Rockets. I highly think they're going to be favorites, 
So if they're favorites, I'm going to pick their spread. If for whatever reason the Lakers are not favorites in these games, I'll be picking their money line instead. And I'll be putting $10 for all three of these games bets. This means I'm risking $30 total dollars on this week for a Kobe Bryant Lakers themed bet. Now, for an attempt to see if I can make some strategic picks, if you will. And my first attempt is going to be with sticking with the soccer leagues this upcoming weekend since it's what I know best. Even though the last two weeks have not been favorable, and it's probably ever since I said picking soccer is super easy or betting soccer is super easy, I'm pretty sure that's coming to bite me in the ass right now. But let's see if I can switch my luck around with these upcoming picks. The first slate I have is going to be a seven-team pick round robin I want to create. Starting off in the Premier League, I have Chelsea to cover a spread of minus one and a half, Southampton to just straight up win, the Wolverine Wanders to win as well, Manchester City to cover a spread of minus one and a half, then moving on to La Liga, I have Barcelona covering a spread of minus one and a half, then Real Betis just straight up winning, and the last game I have on this slate is going to be coming from your Bundesliga, where I have Wolfsburg also to just straight up win. And it's not the Wolverine Wanderers from the Premier League, but Wolfsburg from the Bundesliga. On that 17 pick round robin, I'll be putting $2 for every parlay it creates, so I'm risking 42 total dollars on this bet slip. The next round robin bet slip I want to create is one of six teams, and it's also going to be sticking with these soccer leagues. And again, starting off in the Premier League, I'm going to be choosing Liverpool to cover a spread of minus one and a half, and then I have Arsenal and Tottenham to just straight up win their games. I have one game from the La Liga, which is going to be Real Madrid to just win at home. And then the final two selections I have for this slate are going to be coming from the Bundesliga, where I'm going to be trusting Bayern Munich again to cover a spread of minus one and a half and RB Leipzig to just straight up win. And for this six team round robin I have selected, I'll be putting $2 again for every parlay created, but this time it's only going to be risking 30 total dollars for this bet slip. Then, after what I hope becomes a successful betting weekend, I'm going to be looking on the NBA for just two key dates, really. March 7th and March 10th. And let me start off with March 7th, which is going to be on Monday. The only reason I'm choosing this date is because there's eight games being played on this day. And for my round robin bet slips, I love doing eight game selections because it just fits the format so perfectly. So what I've decided to do this upcoming Monday on March 7th for all eight NBA games is I'll just be relying on the underdogs. Now, obviously this last week they have not fared me well, but I'm going to see if I can just pick the right day, which is next week on Monday, that, you know, they pick it up. And for that eight team round robin, which is going to be all underdogs, I'll be risking $2 for every parlay it creates. So this bet slip is going to be risking 56 total dollars. Then to cap off my last attempt to see if I can be successful in picking games out a full week or even five to six days ahead, I'm going to be sticking with the March 10th date for the NBA. Why? Because we've only got two games. And whenever we have only two games on NBA, it's like primetime TV. And I love betting two game parlays on primetime TV. And on March 10th, which is going to be next week for Thursday, we have the Nets visiting the Philadelphia 76ers, and then we have the Warriors right after that game playing in Denver against the Nuggets. Now, this is going to be the first time that James Harden plays the Nets, which was his former team. And assuming that Ben Simmons suits up, which, being a Philly fan, I know he won't because he's going to be too scared to play in Philly, then this should be a really interesting matchup. 
because in a way, the Sixers have something more to play for because James Harden wants to kind of take a jab at his old team. Now if Ben Simmons plays, he'd have something to prove and he'd love nothing more than to go into Philly and have an amazing game and shut up the whole crowd. But I'd be willing to make a wager that he's not even going to be in the arena. So what I'm going to be doing for next week's Thursday's matchups is I'm going to be choosing the Sixers spread and then the Warriors spread. Now if one of these teams are underdogs in their game, obviously I'll be picking their money line instead. But I don't see the Sixers being an underdog at home. And the Warriors actually have a small chance I would say to be an underdog just because they're playing away against Denver. But there is a chance that they might be favored. So I'm not setting in stone with what pick I'm making for the Warriors, but I'm definitely certain that the Sixers are going to be favored to win against the Nets this Thursday. And for this bet slip, I've decided to risk 25 total dollars on the Sixers and Warriors covering their spread or winning as a Moneyline underdog. And then just how I started the very beginning of this bet slip by saying I'm going to do a Laker themed one, I'm going to be even more clear just to reiterate what I mean by that. Because tomorrow the Lakers are going to be playing the Warriors, I'm going to be putting a $10 bet slip on the Lakers to win. I know they're going to be underdogs, there is zero reason they're going to be favored in tomorrow's game. However, on Monday the Lakers also play the Spurs. And I also know that on Monday I have my underdog round robin bet slip that I want to create. Regardless of what I do on that slip, for this specific game, I'm going to be choosing the Lakers spread because I'm assuming they're going to be favorited. And I'm going to be putting $10 on that bet slip for the Lakers game on Monday. Now the last game that the Lakers are going to be playing for this whole week that I can do this Laker themed bet is going to be on Wednesday. And the Lakers are going to be visiting the Houston Rockets and they're going to play there. I still think they're going to be favorited to beat the Rockets by a lot or even a little. So I'll be putting in $10 again on the Lakers to cover their spread on Wednesday against the Rockets. So in total, I'm going to be having three round robin bet slip formats, and then I'm going to have one two-team parlay on March 10th, and then my three singles where I'm just choosing the Lakers spread or money line. And if you want to keep track with these bet slips and just specifically what they look like, or maybe find out what odds I caught them at, you can always follow me at the Twitter handle MoneyMarku with capital M's, and I will be posting the bet slips on the day the games are played. Also, one last finishing thought I wanted to have is for this upcoming week, I'll be risking $182. And I did this on purpose because technically I looked at my little Excel spreadsheet and because the last two weeks have not been favorable for me, I've technically only made $180 in profit for my gambling account. So I figured the best way to test this last week to see if I can stick on this week to week basis of just making picks is to literally risk all the profit. And we can either double it or maybe make some chump change back. But if I happen to lose a majority of it, then I'm definitely going to have to adjust and switch my tactics, at least with how I make my betting picks. I'll probably start doing it where I post it on the Twitter feed, and then I'm going to relay the information on how I did here. I'll have to figure it out, but we're not going to think about that yet, because we still have a week of 7 bet slips to see if I don't even have to think about that. So here's to YOLOing all the profit I've made in the gambling account and trying to at least make some green this week so I don't have to revert to a different way of betting. And now whether you decide to fade or follow my picks, I hope that by listening to this episode or even this podcast, you're finding a way to make some money. And until next time, all my friendly degenerates and sports gambler listeners, ape out.
Welcome back, class. Because today's episode is the 24th one, I've decided to dedicate it specifically to Kobe Bryant. Now, I know a lot of you think basketball when you think Kobe Bryant, but I'm hoping that by the end of today's lesson, you'll be able to walk away here knowing that he thought more than just about basketball, and it paid off big time, especially since the most tragic thing ever could have happened to him. Because unfortunately, this world lost a beautiful and kind-hearted soul on January 26th of 2020 in a helicopter crash. And not only that, but that day, we also lost his daughter and seven others in the crash as well. And there's nothing we can do to change the outcome. But what we can do is talk about the good stuff Kobe did while he was on this planet because we all have an expiration date. And if we can keep his legacy and the mindset he had, aside from just basketball, then maybe we can start transforming this world into a world he wanted, which was a better one. But let's start off with where a lot of you know Kobe Bryant, and that's from his basketball playing days with the Los Angeles Lakers. Because he was able to play with the Lakers for his full 20-year career, which is the second longest tenure one player has had with a specific franchise. The only one that had it longer was Dirk Nowitzki being with Dallas for 21 years. Now, in Kobe Bryant's 20-year career with the Lakers, he won the NBA championship five times. The first in 2000, then 2001, and 2002, so he had a three-peat, and then the last two came in 2009 and 2010. He got one NBA MVP in 2008, and he has two NBA Finals MVP, both coming on the last two championships he won in 2009 and 2010. He's won the All-Star MVP four times, and in his 20-year career, he was an NBA All-Star 18 times, so he only missed it out twice. And my guess is one of those years was his rookie year, which is really hard for rookies to make the All-Star game, so the fact that he only missed it truly once in his whole career is insane. Kobe Bryant also made the All-NBA team 15 times. He made All-Defensive team 12 times. He's a two-time Olympic gold medalist, bringing gold home to the US in 2008 and 2012. For the Los Angeles Lakers, he's fourth all-time in scoring with 33,643 points. He's played 1,346 games and has 1,944 steals. For his playoff stats, he's played 220 games and is fourth all-time in points with 5,640. He's the only NBA player with two jersey numbers retired for the same franchise. So that's 8 and 24. So if you ever play for the Lakers, you are not allowed to wear those numbers. And now are you ready for the most Kobe stat of all? He is second all-time for playoffs and regular season in total clutch points scored. So what's considered clutch points scored is when a game is within five points in the last five minutes of the game. Well, guess what? In the regular season, Kobe has 2,369 points in clutch time, and for the playoffs, he has 378 points in clutch time moments. Now for some more Kobe stats. He has six 60-point games which is second all-time behind Wilt Chamberlain, and his career-high points 
is 81 against the Toronto Raptors, and that's second all-time, again, behind Wilt Chamberlain. And then for game-winning buzzer beaters, Kobe is tied first all-time with Michael Jordan with eight with one franchise, and get this, he's first all-time in buzzer beaters made when his team is trailing, and that's at six. So six of his eight game-winning buzzer beaters came when his team was down by at least one. That's pretty clutch if you ask me. And now you know why people ball up their papers and throw it in the trash as they yell, Kobe! And there's gonna be zero debate if Kobe Bryant is gonna make it to the Hall of Fame. The one thing that's unfortunate is we will never get to hear his Hall of Fame speech because unfortunately he was taken from us too soon. But while he was on this earth, he provided us with plenty good basketball memories and after retirement, he was focusing on changing the world in his way. So now before I get on to post-retirement Kobe and what necessarily he was working on, let me fill you in on the total money he earned playing in his 20-year career in the NBA. Because it was $323 million via all his contracts if you're not accounting for taxes and everything like that. So in 20 years for playing with the Lakers, Kobe Bryant was able to earn, let's just say, $323 million. That's a significant amount of money. But what you might also not notice is that there's a huge percentage of athletes that actually wind up going broke five years after they're out of the league because they were so used to that money inflow while they were playing in the league that when they're out of it, they weren't really investing in themselves for what happens after the league and the expenses still stay the same. But knowing Kobe Bryant, he had a Mamba mentality. And when he retired from basketball, he didn't view it as an end of something, but as the beginning of something new. And the way Kobe thought he could make true inspiration and change was if he started in the business world. So in 2013, Kobe Bryant began an investing firm with one of his buddies named Jeff Stibble. And they called it the Bryant Stibble Investment Firm. Now this investment firm was essentially a venture capitalist firm where they went out to find entrepreneurs and they helped players with investments and investment goals. I watched the Kobe Bryant interview that they had on CNBC in 2019 when Bryant was talking with Stibble about what exactly their firm is trying to do. And he made it very clear that they're not limiting their options, but the overall scope was to help entrepreneurs and players that are coming out of their leagues so they can be set up with investment paths so they don't go broke right away. And what exactly was it that this venture capitalist fund was doing? Well, they were investing in companies and entrepreneurs and trying to get them to either IPO their own company or sell it off to a large player. And some of the famous investments that Kobe has made with this actual fund was in Dell. So his investment firm actually helped IPO Dell company. And another investing company that might ring a bell to you is Epic Games. Because Epic Games was the creator of Fortnite. And he also invested in them because he saw huge potential in the gaming industry. And now aside from just trying to help former players and entrepreneurs find paths to either IPO or sell their business ideas to bigger players, what else was so great about this fund? Well, Kobe started it in 2013 with his friend, and originally the fund was at $100 million. 
they were able to grow this fund in 2019 for the CNBC interview to $2 billion. That's basically 200xing your money. So take $100, multiply it by 200, and if technically you were able to get a piece of the action, that's how much money you would have earned in just seven years investing with Kobe Bryant and Jeff Stibble. So clearly Kobe's new mindset was to take what he had learned and to take the opportunity given to him and really change other people's life through this venture firm investing idea. Because technically as a venture firm, you're able to choose your clients and people you want to work under your firm. And then the success stories that they have only contribute to the market cap and success stories you have. So it's very clear to see that this mama mentality Kobe had wasn't just for basketball, it was for life in general. He was just able to and smart enough to leverage his position as a basketball player to find a way into the business world. And he didn't squander any opportunities that came his way. Now, one of Kobe's best investments, which can really show you why if you invest right now for yourself, the future might be taken care of for not just you, but your family, was his investment he made when he purchased body armor. Back in 2013, right when Kobe was starting his investment firm with his friend, he also purchased a 10% stake in Body Armor for about $60 million. He then was quick to endorse and start recruiting more athletes for Body Armor, which only grows the actual market cap itself. Well, the reason it's one of his best investments is because he spent $60 million in 2013 for it. And before he passed, he was an avid spokesman for Body Armor and constantly recruited athletes to the division. And unfortunately, Kobe isn't ever going to see the fruition of what actually occurred with this investment. But what I can tell you is I know that if he was thinking ahead because of his Mamba mentality, he most likely was not thinking about reaping the sole benefits of this investment. He just saw a great investing opportunity and took it. And guess what? It was an amazing one. Because in the end of 2021, Coca-Cola bought all of Body Armor for a $5.6 billion cash deal. So the 10% Kobe owned back in 2013, which he paid $60 million for, grew to just about over $200 million. So from 2013 to the end of 2021 is just about an 8-year span. So his investment in Body Armor gained him $200 million in value plus in just eight years. While his 20-year playing career, he earned $328 million. So clearly, Kobe Bryant was just as good on the court as he was off it. And because Kobe had this mama mentality, not just for basketball, but life, he was able to provide wealth for his family after something unfortunate happened because you can't tell when you're gonna die, but you can make the most of your time while you're here to set up the ones you love for a better future. And that's exactly what he did, because yes, that $328 million in career earnings probably could have been enough for Kobe, and he could have probably just survived on endorsements, but he wanted to do more. He didn't wanna just help himself or his family, he wanted to help other athletes and entrepreneurs get their ideas out there. 
And also along the line, for just being a great investor, he set up his family now because of his unfortunate passing with an amazing wealth that's for sure to take care of not just the current family he's got now, but the future generations as well. So I'm hoping you can now just get a glimpse and an idea of how important investing can really truly be. Because one of Kobe's philosophies was to invest in something that you believe in. Invest in something that you understand and don't try and play the short game. Wait it out and play the long game. Because if it's something you invest in, that you believe in, and you understand, then you know what's going to be happening when times are rough technically with that company. And you'll know exactly how to act and you're not going to be looking for outside sources to tell you what to do with your money. So Kobe Bryant was clearly more than just a basketball player. He was also a businessman that wanted to invest in the economy and help out other people that were in the same position that he was. And not only was he an investing businessman and a former NBA superstar player, but he was a husband and a father as well. And unfortunately, one of his babies, Gianna Bryant, was also in the helicopter crash with him along with the others when it went down. And I believe that one of the biggest things Kobe was invested in was the successes of his daughters. Because he was a head coach for his girl Gianna Bryant and he was able to teach her and the basketball team that he was coaching, which were all girls, a lot of valuable information. The reason I'm telling you that he was a basketball coach for a girls basketball team is because I believe Kobe Bryant wanted to shine some light on how girls basketball is just as good as men's basketball. But there's a stipulation there and I think Kobe was trying to open the world to the eyes of this. Unfortunately, we can't see that plan unfold. But there's clear evidence, at least if you look at some interviews and just the way he answers certain questions about his basketball philosophy because there have been numerous times that reporters have asked him when he's going to have a son so that he can have someone to fill his shoes. Do you want to know what his response is? I have two beautiful daughters. So Kobe clearly believed that he didn't need a son to fill his shoes and not even in a basketball sense, but he had two beautiful daughters that would have been able to live up to the same expectations that were put on Kobe. He believed in his two little girls that much to be able to shut down a reporter like that. And actions speak louder than words in my opinion because he could have just said that and done absolutely nothing. But instead, he was coaching his girls basketball team and he was trying to make every girl a better basketball player. Which in my eyes, leads for better WNBA product. And if you have better WNBA product, you have more people willing to actually watch the sport. Because let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, when you watch the WNBA and regular NBA, there is literally almost zero difference aside from just all the skillful passes and stuff like that and athletic dunks. Everything in the game is the same. And to be honest with you, the girls play the game fundamentally a whole lot better than the men. And the thing is, both men and women play all kinds of sports for TV purposes. But because more people are willing to watch just the men's side, that's where most of the money goes, which is why those players get paid more money than women players. 
And it's just my opinion, but I truly believe that Kobe Bryant would have tried to get his girl Gianna into the WNBA and she would have made it because she was on a path of superstardom. But aside from that, he was also putting actions into the words he was speaking. He was trying to teach more than just his girl about basketball. He was trying to create a better product for the WNBA so that female athletes could start getting paid or at least get compensated just as equal as the male athletes. Because at the end of the day, both are two people playing sports for money. It's just that in some instances, the bench player, the last person on an NBA roster for a male's team, can sometimes make more money than the most played WNBA player. And there's something seriously wrong with that. But unfortunately, the way the world works, you can point to metrics like viewership and say no, not enough people are watching the WNBA, so therefore the pay is okay. And in my honest opinion, I think Kobe was going to try and somehow change this in a long-term kind of view scope by being a coach for girls basketball. And unfortunately, both Gianna Bryant, Kobe Bryant, and the other seven people on that helicopter had to fatally leave this earth January 6th of 2020. But what was left behind by Kobe was breadcrumbs of what his philosophy of this Mamba mentality was. And that was to always look for something greater. And not just greater for yourself, but greater for everyone around. Because he was tackling issues after his lengthy NBA career. On players going broke after being in the league. Investing in smart ideas to help people IPO or just sell their project idea to a bigger company. To even as little as coaching his girls basketball team. So that he can not only make his girl Gianna a better basketball player but also the other girls that are watching and listening to his coaching methods. So Kobe was tackling issues that he thought he could change in the long run, and this is honestly what I think he means by Mamba mentality. You can always look to find out how to make things better, and then you have to lay out a plan and stick true to it. And in the long run, just how he believes in his investing philosophy, if you believe in something and you understand it, it's going to prosper if you put your time and effort into it. And Kobe was a prime example how even when you thought he had reached the top, in his own mind, he just started. So that's the Mamba mentality. You've always got to be looking forward in how you can possibly make things better. And it's not always better for just you, but for everyone around you. Because when the world is a complimentary one, everyone is having a good time. So now I'm hoping you can walk away from this knowing that Kobe was more than just a clutch basketball shooter. He was more than just a Lakers legend. Because after retirement, he sought out and seek to do more. He wanted to make legends of just regular people's lives by believing in them with his venture investment capital firm. And one thing that's important to remember, especially in the light of Kobe Bryant, is that people die all the time, but ideas, ideas can linger on forever. And now class, that's going to be wrapping up today's teaching moment on Kobe Bryant. I'm hoping you were able to learn a little bit more about him, aside from just being a tremendous basketball player. He had a huge mind and an even bigger dream for the future. So if you made it this far into the episode, I just want to say thank you, love you, and until next time, 
Ape out. Nike's core value is the athlete itself. So you have to stand by what the athlete believes in. If this is what the athlete believes in, this is what you support. So it doesn't complicate things much at all. You gotta stick to what you believe is right. Well, you know, we ultimately we want to be able to grow, but I think we have to be patient about it too, right? It's not about, you know, especially for us athletes, my biggest concern, my biggest fear for athletes getting into the investment game is that we're looking for unicorns all the time. We're looking for home runs all the time. It's important to be patient, make smart decisions, invest in the things that you understand, things you can get your arms around, things that you can help grow, and, uh, and then take it from there. Kobe.